So I noticed that after the reading in Genesis, when Stephanie said the word of the Lord, the thanks be to God was a little quieter than normal. And then when we did the Galatians reading, the thanks be to God was a little louder. I've never thought about that. You can tell the scriptures that we're more thankful for in in that moment sometimes, huh? Uh, So one of the benefits of going through a book of the Bible and just going continually through chapters and verses is that you have to preach things that a pastor might not choose on his own. Um, One of the hard things about going through books like that is you have to preach things that a pastor would not choose on his own. So last week we started this new series on the section of the book of Genesis that spans chapters 37 through 50. And they make up the final and really the climactic part of this first book of the Bible. And the larger storyline is that God has entrusted the family of Abraham with a special calling and a special task. The world is in this state of rivalry, of disarray. Humans are stuck in this cycle of pride and self-destruction. But God promised Abraham that he would bless him and he would bless his family and he would make them a blessing to others as they listen to him, as they obey him. So the first thing God asks Abraham to do is to go. He requires some form of obedience, of listening. Now, Abraham was Judah's great-grandfather, the character that we're hearing about today. So naturally, there's a question that's, that's coming at this stage. It's a question nearly every parent and grandparent will ask. Whether the good lessons they've tried to instill in their children will live on. Will they? Here's the question. Here, the question is whether the faith of Abraham and God's promises to Abraham are going to live on into this next generation. Now, we saw last week that the family was on the verge of ruin. Uh, Jacob, the father of 12 sons, had spoiled one of them to the point that the rest hated him. And the other sons, they have their own issues. They have unrestrained sexual urges. They have uh, anger. And they feel like they have to kill their brother to actually, just to get rid of him. Uh, now, they do compromise, and they sell him into slavery instead. We looked last week at a couple of the ways, though, that God already appears to be working quietly to bring about a future reconciliation in the family. We're going to encounter this again and again as we read this story. That in the midst of all these characters' decisions, both good and bad, God is ensuring that his promises to Abraham will live on and this family will indeed become a blessing. It will. Now, on the surface, this very sketchy story about Judah and Tamar is an odd interruption into the story of Joseph. Joseph is the hero of this story, right? But I hope we'll see today that this story is actually situated quite perfectly and is actually the crucial event in Judah's life that prepares him to be a leader in his family to a large degree, even more so than Joseph. Here's something very interesting I find about stories like this one in the Bible especially compared to other literature around the time in which uh, the Bible is being 
put together. Other literature in this era, uh, it focuses on heroes, people like Odysseus. Think, think about a story like that one. It's strong men, most often, who are almost godlike. They're overcoming great obstacles through their brute strength and ingenuity. So those stories rarely, if ever, look in on a character's flaws. Those stories are similar to the magazine cover models who have no warts or blemishes, right? Compared to us when we wake up in the morning. In the midst of this world filled with unrealistic characters comes the characters in the Bible. The people in the Bible have obvious flaws. In a lot of ways, the stories are about their flaws. They're full of fears and contradictions. Sometimes they're brave, but other times they are cowardly. Sometimes they're wise, but other times they make us wonder, what were you thinking? Have you not learned anything yet? Do you remember when Abraham's wife, Sarah, couldn't bear a child? So she tells him to sleep with her servant. And reading this, we all know, Abraham, this is a bad idea. Don't do it. But he does it. Turns out. It was a bad idea, right? After reading the story of Judah and Tamar, we'd rather not say this. But the truth is the people of the Bible are a lot like us. They're more like us than Odysseus. They're real. They have their warts and their wrinkles. They're they're in process, just like us. And the Bible leads us and how real humans grow, learn, and find redemption in the most surprising places. The story today is about Judah's transformation. What I'd like us to do is first to walk through this story again to, and focus on two parts. I, I see two main parts to this story. First, to see that through much of the story, up until Judah realizes that he's been tricked, he's forsaken proper care for his family. And he's forsaken proper care for the wider community in which his family is a part, and they're called to bless. From all appearances, through most of this story, Judah is living only for himself. But in the second part, I'd like us to see that God uses Tamar to lead Judah back to his family. Every time we see Judah in the story following this chapter, he is a different man. An entirely different man. And the only clue we have to why is this gross humiliation. At the end, we'll talk about what it means for us to learn from a story like this. So the first thing I'd like us to notice is that Judah has forsaken his family responsibilities. He's given them up. From all appearances, he is living only for himself. Uh, So recall that Judah was the one who actually convinced his brothers to sell Joseph off as a slave. They've thrown him in the pit and Judah convinces them to 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 sell him off as a slave, to at least make something off of it. And of course, this might have been better than just letting Joseph die in the pit. But it's a far cry from doing the right thing, isn't it? From rescuing his brother. 
convincing them that what they're doing is entirely wrong. So you could legitimately say that Judah bore the main responsibility for what happened to Joseph. He was the ringleader orchestrating his brother's disappearance and the cover-up to convince his dad that his favorite son was dead. When it's all done and his father Jacob is inconsolable, Judah leaves town, gets out of Dodge. Did you notice the way chapter 38 starts? Literally, at that time, when Jacob is sold off, or Joseph is sold off, Judah left his brothers. And in a way, you don't blame him. His brothers don't seem to be the best company, do they? But what happens to Judah from here? Does he start afresh, a new life? Well, pretty quickly, he finds a woman. And our narrator describes their romance in just two quick words in Hebrew. He took her and he went into her. Now, if you're at a get-together with new friends and people ask you, how did you and your spouse meet? And the, the story can be told this quickly. That, that is not a good thing, right? It's, it might not require any explanation. But when these two Hebrew words are used to get together in the Bible, they usually carry overtones of lust. And you add to this the fact that Judah's wife never even gets a name. And the only details of their relationship are the children they bear. She conceived and bore. She conceived and bore again. She conceived and bore yet another child. I laughed a little bit because as we're pregnant with a third, there's a possibility this is a boy and Katie already has two boys. And so if she conceives and bears another boy, we might be in a tough spot too. (laughs) When you look at the details of their relationship, we should already be wondering, is there something wrong with this picture? And then we hear about Judah's firstborn child, Ur, that he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God put him to death. And I'll say a little bit more about this later, but let's keep going through the story for now. So Judah, abiding by customs of the ancient world, this was ubiquitous in the ancient world, he he gives Onan to Tamar to bear children, at least one child, on behalf of the older son, Ur. But Onan, too, behaves wickedly before God, and God puts him to death. This time, Judah suspects Tamar to be the problem. So even though by ancient law, Tamar still belongs to Judah and to the family, she cannot go anywhere. He stalls in giving her his last son. He leaves her stuck in waiting, legally married, a woman ready to bear children, but shamefully forced to live in her father's house. Then we learn that Judah's wife dies as well. And very quickly, Judah is comforted, which in this case just means that the official mourning period is over. But there's something else we need to notice in all of this action. Authors in the Bible can communicate things both by what they say and by what they don't say, right? And often they want us to learn and understand by comparing different characters in the story. What's said about some characters versus what's not said about others. So think about Judah. After two sons' deaths, we've heard nothing about him mourning. Nothing. 
And here, after his wife's death, it says literally, after he was comforted. Hold that in your mind. Compare Judah with his father, Jacob. The love story between Jacob and his wife, Rachel, took up entire chapters. And then when he believed his son Joseph was dead, in contrast to Judah, who simply went through the official grieving period, was comforted, and then goes and finds a prostitute, Jacob actually refused to be comforted. This is subtle but important stuff. Even if Jacob is excessive, he's too touchy-feely, he's overly attached. Judah appears numb. Judah is withdrawn from his family and he's lacking in any emotional attachment. Jump forward just a little bit. Judah's rejection of family responsibility, his lack of general empathy, it comes through the clearest in his refusal refusal to care for those who are most vulnerable in his family. Tamar. After she's tricked him and he still doesn't know it, he's told she's pregnant. Look, this is a convenient opportunity for him to get rid of the woman who he thinks has killed two of his sons. So he responds with brutal force. Two words again in Hebrew, bring her out and let her be burned. He won't have to fulfill his obligations to give her his third child. Tamar will be out of the picture. Thankfully, the stunt Tamar pulls puts Judah face to face with his sin. We're going to look now at how God uses Tamar to lead Judah back to his family, essentially shocking him into feeling again. How in the world can we talk positively and affirmatively of what Tamar does? Well, it's Judah's own words that affirm her. She's more righteous than I. These are legal words. Judah had the legal right to put Tamar to the death. But instead, he says... She is innocent. She is more righteous than I. I'm the guilty one. But it's also God's blessing on her of two children after having lost two husbands. And even more, God's involving Tamar in the line of Christ affirms her. Tamar, in her courageous willingness to act, brings in redemption. She is like Rebecca, who saves her son, her husband Isaac from blessing the wrong child. She is like Rahab, who protects the people of God. This is why we can affirm Tamar. The greatest sin in this story is not related to sex. The greatest sin is about injustice, a refusal to care for one's family, particularly one who is weak. This scenario rebukes Judah and calls him back to his family in three ways. Three ways. First, Judah is forced to recognize his responsibility to Tamar. His admission that she's more righteous means he sees that he had no right to withhold his son from her. And he was wrong to project blame for his son's wickedness. 
And as an aside, the narrator also tells us that Judah didn't know her again. So in other words, Judah realized his cold-hearted perversions had finally caught up with him and took him further than he ever wanted to go. It woke him up. Second, in this very odd turn, Judah, who has lost two sons, he now receives two more. He's called to be a father again, but called to be a father in a new way. Third, this trick that Tamar pulls on Judah is hauntingly familiar. So years ago, to convince his father that his brother Joseph was dead, Judah helped cover up his brother's robe in goat's blood, right? He went to his father and he said to him, please identify whether this is your son's robe. Now, many years later, when Tamar pulls out Judah's belongings, she says, please identify whose these are. We've all had decisions that have come back to bite us, but I'm not sure they can compare to this. Judah is, through Tamar, not only being called to fulfill his responsibilities to her, but he's being reminded of his responsibilities to his family, his father and his brothers, whom he has abandoned. So when we see Judah later in this story, He's not at all the same man we see here. He's no longer cold. He's no longer numb toward his family. In fact, he's tenderhearted toward his old father, who is still inconsolable over Joseph. Judah ends up taking up for his brothers and laying his life on the line for them. It's Judah in the end who's able to speak to Joseph the brother that he had sold into slavery years before and convince him that the family has changed. So Judah is the one who unknowingly leads this family into reconciliation. We could say much more about Judah, that from Judah ends up coming the kings of Israel. Even more that from the line of Judah and Tamar comes Jesus, the one who intercedes for all his brothers and sisters and lays his life down for them. But from all that we can tell, what's fascinating is it's this shocking humiliation that God uses to lead Judah back to his family, his responsibility to care for them and to shepherd them. Now, what do we do with this story today? First, I think we need to be reminded from this story that the calling of all of us is to nurture our families with a firm kindness and gentleness. A firm kindness and gentleness. Judah's harshness toward Tamar is utterly condemned, but so is his blindness toward his son's wickedness. The story does not spell this out for us. We have to do the work of putting the pieces together. But when we do, Judah's son's wickedness, Ur and Onan's, these are connected with Judah's neglect of his family. 
his seeming emotional absence. Now, I want to be extra careful here. It is not the case in every scenario that a, a child's waywardness is connected with the parents. God himself has children who wander to no fault of his. So do good parents. But here there is a connection and there's a warning. While we have to look closely to see Judah's rejection, we have, to, we have to read it into the story, his rejection of family responsibilities. His son's rejection is obvious. It's glaring. Ur pushes the boundaries of reckless living to the point that he somehow earns an early death. Whatever that is. And Onan's sin, it's specifically related to disregard for family. This compassionate law, which was, as I said, common practice in the ancient world. It ensured that a man who died young would still have a lineage. That his name wouldn't entirely disappear from the earth. Even though we're far removed from this, we must understand that this was out of compassionate regard for a person who died. But Onan won't have it. And Judah is blind to their evil in both cases. He even takes their side against the more vulnerable Tamar. So there is a warning here to parents. Our children will often build and add on to the foundation that we lay down for them. For good or ill. And if we shut our eyes to their sin, it won't bode well for anyone. So even if children are out of the house, uh, we might have a different role to play in their lives, but we still cannot completely shut our eyes to their sin, to their waywardness. We must still try to be examples, still try to pray, and where we have opportunity, still try to speak into their lives. So the Bible, it doesn't affirm Judah's parenting but neither does it affirm Jacob's spoiling of Joseph. Do you see this? That in the last two chapters, there have been two forms of parenting that are condemned, that are seen as wrong. So in some way, these stories are calling us, parents, godparents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, together as the body of Christ, to a kind of shepherding that has both firmness and kindness at its heart. Uh, we've all grown up in different family environments where emotions are treated in different ways. Some families are much more emotional than others. That's understandable. But as people who have believed in Jesus, who have received the spirit, we should always be growing in the fruit of that spirit, which includes kindness and gentleness. Shepherding in our homes is always this sort of balancing act. Trying to be faithful and disciplined, but also trying to apply grace as frequently as we can. This is a place where Judah messed up. And God rebukes him and God transforms him. So ask yourself, where do you struggle most? Is it the grace side? Is it the discipline side? Is it just praying for your children? What is it? Where might you need to repent like Judah and return to your family in a new way? All at once it hits Judah that he has just 
bombed it. That he has not been faithful. We're called to nurture our families in this firm kindness and gentleness. And one more thing I think we should hear from this story. Hold on with everything you've got for God's mercies. With everything you have. Because at the end of this story, while Judah's sons are dead, his wife has died, and he has children by his daughter-in-law. At the end of it, there's mercy. This is the last word, mercy. We don't know where or when God's mercies will come into our lives, but we're called to hold out hope, to pray and seek righteousness ourselves and wait. Judah would have no idea that God was making him into a leader through this. That he was bringing redemption into his family and not only into his family, but into the world through his family. Hold on to God. Hold on to his mercy. This story is about transformation. It's about God being true to his promises and being capable of bringing redemption into our lives. This is our story. The story of Church of the Lamb. As we carry out our lives, our service to God and to the world in which we live, our little corners of the world, we do it knowing that God keeps his promises to us, that God will ensure that his promises to us will come true. They'll come into fruition. And That no matter the mess in our lives or in the lives of people around us, God is capable of bringing redemption. So as we carry out life in our church, as we go out into the community, into our friendships, into our family life, let's not give up hope. Let's hold on. Let's trust that God can be faithful to us. And that he loves us so much that he intends redemption and reconciliation for all the relationships in our lives that are so broken. Let's pray. Father, this is a a really odd story. It is outrageous in so many ways. But the fact that you work in it, God, this is what we're so grateful for. Will you enter in and help us to see the brokenness in our lives that we need to hold out hope for, that we need to trust that you can transform us and that you can transform people around us. And if we need to be people like Tamar, who need to be courageous in our action and need to be extremely wise, will you give us that wisdom and give us that courage? We thank you for your son, Jesus, and the redemption that we have in him. In his name, amen.